All right. Well, this is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long. We are here on the Theology Corner Podcast Network. My co-host for this week is Matt <laughs> Langston. We are still here. We're, we're still here at the beautiful... <laughs> Rock Candy Studios here in, in Western North Carolina. Stevens, always, always so much fun to be on, be on your show. It is so much fun to have you on my show. Yeah. You bring out, actually, I've told people that without other people who are funny, I tend to be really sour and morbid, mm. and I'm not good at being funny on my own. Like, I tend to be, my, <laughs> my neutral state is being really, really stony-faced and and serious to Do a fault. Do you take yourself too seriously, I take Steven? myself way too seriously, yeah. and I think I told you, via, I think I sent you a text several weeks ago, like, one of the things that I love so much about recording with you is that you you make fun of me all the time on air. Like, you laugh at me, and that's really good. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, that's really awesome. Yeah, so I was actually having a conversation with my wife about this a few weeks ago, and I was like, why is it? Because we went to go see a friend of ours play. Uh -huh. It was like she and her husband were in this play, and I was just so jacked up from the show after the play, and, and like, they're actors, and, like, that's who I grew up hanging out with was, like, musicians and actors, and, like, you know, so we're always kind of on and always kind of coked out a little bit socially uh -huh. like just looking for somebody to kind of riff off of and i thought that's what this was going to be so like i hung around after the show and waited for them to kind of come out of course they just went through like you know two and a half hours of just emotional turmoil in this play that they did this, he he comes out her husband comes out and I just kind of start riffing on him and I can't stop myself like to the point where Jessica's like <laughs> grabbing my hand. She never like grabs my hand for anything. But when she does, it's either like I have to go and we I can't poop here or like, <laughs> or please shut the fuck up. <laughs> you know, John does the we same have thing to go. To me. Yeah, but he just like, I, I don't know what it was. I just kept throwing these things at him or like making these little digs at him. Uh -huh. And... Part of it is just like if you can take the dig and kind of throw it back, then it sort of puts us in the fast lane to to being really cool with each other. Exactly. Like uh, in, and have that sort of friendship. Exactly. And so I feel like I'm constantly like throwing darts at people and some people just get really offended by it. Yeah. And other people are just like, yep, got it. Cool. Right back at you. And those are normally the people that I'm like exactly. have the most fun <laughs> hanging out with. My best friend is an is a drag queen insult comic and she was my only friend in high school and college and so I feel like part of the reason I can do what I do now yeah uh, is because she just endlessly insulted me for has <laughs> has endlessly insulted me for years right ruthlessly right yeah which I appreciate that kind of stuff because as soon as somebody throws an insult out at me and it actually hits like it actually hurts I'm like, well, my ego's too large in that area. Exactly. I immediately know where I need to change. Like exactly. It's something I need to work on. And it's really important as a creator, too. Yeah. To, to, I, my worst nightmare is that I'll turn into a Devo. <laughs> Devo's the best band in the world. Why would you not? Not, not that Devo. <laughs> totally different Devo. <laughs> totally. <laughs> like, I always want to be able to take not take myself too seriously. So I know that this episode is basically a continuation of a conversation that we began Last episode? Yeah. Well, so we're sitting here with our friend Timothy. And for those of you who have not checked out the last episode of Sacred Tension, please do so. There'll probably be either a link to it in the show notes or you've already hit the subscribe button for the podcast. So it doesn't even matter. You already have it and have listened to it and please enjoyed it. Please validate my ego. Yeah. Hit that subscribe <laughs> button. It's the ego button. It's the it ego is. button. Yeah. A little hit of dopamine each time it happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So basically, this has been your coming out experience, your coming out story. Again, if you haven't heard all of it, check out the podcast before this one. I kind of want to pick up where that one left off. Okay. And one of the things I was thinking about as we By were... the way, let's introduce Timothy. I yes. Think we did. Oh, okay. Yes. And do a reintroduction. Yes. Yeah. What is this amateur? Hello, hour? Timothy. Hello. <laughs> How are you? You're, Timothy's still here with us. Uh, can you fit in the room with our egos? They're, I know they take up a lot of space. So like we've had very similar experiences within the church, but you must have had a very particular childhood recognizing at such a young age that you were same sex attracted. I have to imagine that there's some there's some stories there. Like there are some I would have to imagine that there are some critical moments where nobody just all of a sudden gets really good at hiding, gets really good at putting on a facade, gets really good at playing the Protestant game overnight it's kind of a slow burn 
But I mean, I was living in Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah. I was, we were part of a United Methodist Church. Okay. But kind of old school United Methodist. You know, you might hear that denomination today and think, you know, more progressive, more liberal. But I mean, this was, this was over 50 years ago. So this is different. And I know that denomination well enough to know that you can have pockets of, I mean, that the, it's a big, huge spectrum theologically, no matter what the institutional church says. Right. You know, mm. if you're in a very small UMC church in a rural setting, you know, you don't know theologically exactly what's coming down the pike. But anyway, I mean, I just understood that being a homosexual was wrong. Right. I mean, that was just in the water. That's That was in the air. It was just, you know, to quote, Gone with the wind. It just ain't fitting. Yeah. Simply ain't fitting. You just that's just not that's not right. So, you know, you grow up with that, and you and you basically play along with that. Do you think your parents knew? Well, they 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 certainly knew by the time I was in college. Yes. Do you feel like they? That's when you discovered that they knew, or oh, I do don't you feel like I, that you just couldn't hide it from them because they knew you so well. Or well, what happened is I went off to college and I was seduced by a grad student. Mm. And my mother read part of a letter that I had in my stuff, and that's when it was was revealed that basically I was I was having relations with a man. Yeah, was it a romantic relationship? Oh yes. Okay. Very much so. Yeah. What was it that was attractive about this relationship? He was real handsome. We were having fun. It was like I could I could breathe. Yeah. It's like the white noise ceased. Okay. And everything became clear. It was like, oh, mm. oh, this is this is me. And mm. then, so it was it was an actualizing experience for you. You yeah. felt more of yourself. Yeah. The, okay. It was as if things came into focus. Okay. It's like the 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 jigsaw puzzle finally fit together, and oh, now I get now I get me. So is that happening but for I you still, personally? But I, but, but I still knew it was tragically wrong. You were still because, of the belief that it oh, was tragically yeah. wrong. I mean, that was every. And both of us were under that belief. Yeah. So the jigsaw puzzle of belief versus behavior was not fitting, mm. in other words. And this is something that I think is really painful for a lot of LGBT people. When, you know, there have been times in my life when I was living in a way that did not conform to my theological beliefs. You know, I believed right. that I was, you know, in the words of the Catholic Church, intrinsically disordered, and that I needed to um, remain celibate for my whole life, and I mm-hmm. wasn't celibate. And yet, that act of being not celibate was so affirming and validating and clarifying and good, you know, having this relationship with a guy. It was a good relationship. And yet, that dissonance, that cognitive dissonance between belief and life was just crushing. It was just devastating. Did you experience any of well, that? Well, I mean, it's absolutely, and it's and it's it's condemning. Yeah. It's shaming. Yeah. Because, you know, it's like I, I read the manual. I know what a red traffic light means. Sure. But yet I go through it every time. Yeah. That starts to wear, wear you down because it's like it's wrong, but it's right. It's right. It's, it's just, yeah. Kind of fast forwarding now to the present. One of the big things that has changed is not just your acceptance of yourself or the ability to be authentic, but also what you believe about yourself. Mm-hmm. What has changed about what you believe? How does that relate to God? Well, the big change, of course, having been, you know, formed in the theological womb of American conservative evangelicalism, I had a very specific view of homosexuality because it was based on a traditionalist, conscious, literalist interpretation of the scripture. Yeah. And therefore, I knew that I was condemned. I knew that I was perverse. I knew I was demented in some ways. I was conveniently left ignorant about a lot of it because mm. I think that's the best way to deal with someone. Yeah. Don't really explain too much. You know, I, I I can articulate this now, but I couldn't then. But because I have such a deep respect for the concept of theosis, and that is the notion that it was God's initiative and his intention that we will be transformed 
into his likeness and that we will dwell with him forever and that this is literally the telos or the goal of human existence. I mean, that is traditional little o orthodox yes. Christian teaching. That has been the dominant teaching of the church as long as we know the church has been around. So I did a huge study on that for a doctoral program that I'm in, and it was a major player in my in my decision to do what I've done about living into the reality of who I am. Mm. Because it was incongruent that God could be so relational, because that's really the story of God. Our God wants us. And I mean, this, this is my theological perspective. My God made me, loves me, wants me, has great things planned for me. In the conservative evangelical church, we don't get that message very much. No. And if you're a same-sex attracted person, you really don't get that message. Mm. Yeah. So basically, my view of God as being so lovingly relational to all that he's made and so sacrificial and so loving, my view of the scriptures, my view of same-sex attraction, my view of the relationship between spirituality and sexuality, all of this has changed dramatically. Yeah. And it all started as I was in my doctoral studies and I was reading these really brilliant people write these books that I struggled to read because as, as part of how being same-sex attracted in a world that doesn't like same-sex attracted people, one of the ways I showed that is I believe that I was always the dimmest bulb in any pack mm. of light bulbs. I, I was the first to tell you how stupid I was and how not intelligent I was. I thought it was laughable that I was on a faculty at a college because I thought I was the least intellectual person there. Because mm. I had so I had such low self-esteem because I knew that according to the scriptures, I was dung. I mean, there 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 wasn't much good about me. Because mm. apparently I had wanted this. You know, I chose this, you know, which, of course, now I look back and things, one of the funniest things anyone could ever say to me, to live in a culture that basically is so homophobic, why would you just one day go, oh, man, I want to be part of a group that everybody hates? Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is really what I want for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. I never chose it. It arrived with me. I'm not going to go into the whole natural, unnatural, nurture, nature thing here because there's no time, but it just is what I've always known. I've never known anything different. This being being attracted to men. Yes. Yeah. And the and the question of nurture and nature is is irrelevant when it is that persistent and that unlearnable. You know, we cannot unlearn our language. It doesn't matter if we yeah. were born with it or we acquired it. You know, with homosexuality, it's probably a combination of both, but we can't get rid of it. It's not going to change. But you know, where the needle is sitting on the dial, it's really never moved. Yeah. For me, it's always been in one direction, and that's just all I've ever known. But I started I started in reading these books, and I started hearing people say things like, well, you know, when, when Luke or John or Matthew or, or Mark were writing these Gospels, these that were brought into the canon of Scripture while the others were not, of course, that was, that was a human decision, which ones came in, which ones were canonized, but... They had very specific biases and prejudices mm. and narrative they wanted to get across and people they were writing to. They knew their audience. They knew what they wanted to affirm and not affirm. And suddenly, all the years of saying devoutly that the scriptures are inspired, infallible, inerrant, I started going... What? <laughs> yeah. It's it's what? it's the wrong it's almost like the wrong question. Do, do they need to be? Do they need to be in foul? Do they need to be without air? Cuz to me what what that is is like people that people that need for the Bible to be a black and white thing and they need to have the monopoly 
on how to interpret it and on what it means. First of all, to to assume that you in your tiny lifespan here on Earth can take a book that's the culminations of thousands of years of human history of people trying to interpret to the best of their ability, language, and culture their experience with this thing called God. Mm -hmm. That you somehow in your... 60 to 80 years if you're lucky here on the planet earth like you can get enough information to say you have the monopoly on how to interpret this it's it to me that is more a testament to just how easy it is to mistake religion for tribalism mm -hmm. and then to have the gall to say that an exclusivist or infallible inerrant view of scripture is a high view of scripture. Right. And then, you know, the scholars that you're talking about must have a low view of scripture. And I think it's actually quite the opposite. I think an infallible, inerrant view of scripture compresses scripture down into a single frame of meaning, and that is ultimately a form of devaluation. It's mm -hmm. worshiping correctness. Exactly. Instead of something higher that works for everyone. <laughs> it's, it's worshiping absolute certainty, mm. which is just about the most uncertain thing there is. Mm. Yes. Uh, so yeah. these little threads started forming into this fabric through these studies. And little by little, you know, I have come to read more and more authors talk about how we have taken these fragments of, uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, Marcus Borg is very important to me as a writer on mm. this topic. Yes. And, you know, when we realize that to this very day, they are going through pots and barrels in Alexandria yeah. with tweezers still pulling out fragments yes. of, of, of sacred writings mm -hmm. yes. and trying to put them together into, into a kind of meaning for us. And that, to me, is the marvel of sacred scripture. But anyway, you that know... We, that we even have that it. That we even have That we it. even have this incredible thing called the Bible. But as, as I said to you recently, Stephen, when I realized how absolutely dutifully gullible I was, mm. because someone basically said to me, you're a same-sex attracted person, you're a gay person. Mm -hmm. And see, I believe every, every person on the planet is working through the spiritual reality of their existence because mm. i believe as it says in genesis that we were made in the like in the image and likeness of god yeah it's part of our dna we can't deny it we can try so you've got this you've got this person who's same-sex attracted and you tell them that the scripture says that they are really broken and unlovable well the only help really for them is god that's because they're spiritually woven, and they need access to God to be complete. Mm. But basically you say, now to get to God, you need to conform to this interpretation yeah. of the Scriptures. So the very medicine you need has a condition. Right. So I bought the condition. I basically said, okay, mm. whatever. I will hold to this interpretation. Well, here's the problem that I've discovered. The Bible is highly inconsistent and complicated and complex it affirms things that we don't want to affirm it condemns things that in our day and age we know is no longer true and if you really believe that every single word of it is god breathed then you <laughs> must obey every single word of it because right. if it if it is an errant it is an errant to make such a claim like that Exactly. I feel like is is the very definition of superstition. See, when we talk about yeah, it we, all the time, we talk about superstition. The a magical lot. thinking. It's also inevitably a house of cards. There's a there's inevitably going to be a point in having an infallible view of scripture that they the internal inconsistencies it, it's going to crumble beneath its own weight. Mm -hmm. It is impossible to maintain an infallible and errant view of scripture, what many Protestants call a quote-unquote high view of scripture, while maintaining, in my opinion, intellectual honesty. Because it, it requires a, a certain measure of willful blindness, in my opinion, or gullibleness. Yeah. I think all three of us in this room have been gullible in that way before. Oh, but, I was yeah. I was totally signed on mm. because I was told this is conditional 
of you being saved. This is this is conditional of you having God in your life. What I love about Marcus Borg's writing is that he breaks it down so I could understand how we got to this place of thinking of the scriptures this way. Mm-hmm. And Peter Inns also writes about this. And he, you know, they talk about the fact that science, evolution, archaeology, historical studies, biblical scholarship, it all started to form at the end of the 1800s into the into the turn of the 20th century. Yes. And all of a sudden, what the Bible was saying about those things were not lining up. We're not lining up at all. And therefore, those who believed in a literalist interpretation panicked. Because yes. how could something that's infallible and inerrant not be telling me the truth about civilizations and biology and sexuality and history and all of the rest. Mm. Well, it wasn't lining up. So we basically went towards sticking your fingers in your ears and going la, 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 when someone's trying to have a conversation with you. Exactly. Because the Bible is true, the Bible is true. And it's just too terrifying. The alternative is just too terrifying. Because it leaves you uncertain. Exactly. And, you know... To again quote Peter Inns, The Sin of Certainty, which is a must-read, mm. he basically just says, what God asks us to do is trust him. Yes. And trusting also involves doubting. <laughs> the path to trusting is doubting. And the path to nowhere is this ravenous need to always be right and certain. Because yes. there's no there's no growth on that path. You know, kind of the thing that I came to for myself as I was in the process of coming out and coming out to myself and having to admit, A, this is who I am, B, I need to, I, I no longer had the luxury to believe a non-affirming view of myself. I had to be open to a gay relationship because the alternative was simply killing me. Truly, that's not an exaggeration. I came to the realization that within Christian, within Christianity, I am not saved by right belief. I don't think I'm wrong, but at the end of the day, part of what Christ died for is not just my actions, but the continuum between belief and action, and that because it is in my nature to be wrong, and my track record in life is that I'm wrong far more than I'm right. And then that plays out in how I behave. There is a continuum. There is a, there is a profound connection between action and thought. He came not just to save me from sinful behavior. He came to save me from, to rescue me from ideas that I hold with the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. At this point in my life, I describe myself as more of a non-theistic Christian, but at that point in my life, what really got me through was the revelation that I can actually trust God. Mm -hmm. I can actually trust Jesus with this, and he died for things like this. If I'm wrong, that's why he died. I need a savior, not just because I, I behave in a fallen way, but because my mind cannot fathom the full truth. And if I'm wrong about this, I hold this with utmost sincerity. If I happen to be wrong about it, I can trust God. I can trust Jesus to be big enough and to put a cap on his atonement in that way, to say, well, no, he can, you know, if I sleep around and do drugs and embezzle and whatnot (laughs) and steal and whatever— If I believe in Christ, he will forgive me for those things. But if I hold a wrong belief, then he can't. That is putting a cap on the atonement of Christ. Mm. And that is what got me through this idea that I can actually trust God. And that takes, that was maybe one of the hardest things I did because trust is so, so Mm -hmm. difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And kind of what I'm hearing for you, and this was true for me as well, I wanted, my entire life, I've wanted to be okay with myself. Oh, yeah. Mm. But what kept me back was a prison of belief. Mm -hmm. 
Would you call it a prison of belief or a prison of certainty? The prison of certainty. It was the prison of, absolutely the prison of certainty. And what held me back was a certain theological framework. And then for me, what really did it was a Presbyterian minister who's, who's gay, and he came up with a very specific kind of theology um, called accommodationism, which was what I, it was the stepping stone that I needed at the time, which was basically, this is still part of the fallen order, but it's accommodated for within the salvation of Christ. And I don't believe that now, and I think that that has some intrinsic problems that can be very damaging, but it was what I needed mm. to move forward. And I couldn't go all the way to, you know, this is how God made me, or this is good, or this is 100% good. But it was what I needed to step forward into being able to have, you know, to, to have an openness. Mm-hmm to a relationship, openness to being who I am. What I think a lot of people fail to see is that there are many Christians, either in the closet, and there are many Christians who are straight and non-affirming, who are held back. If they had their own way, they would affirm homosexuality, but they're being held back by a certain belief system. And as that belief system starts to shift and become more malleable, then they're able to be free. And that's why we have to talk about these ideas. That's mm-hmm. why we, we have to talk through this theology, because those bars, we have to make those bars a bit more malleable so then they can break out and they can be, they can love their family members the way they want to. They can love their gay family members mm-hmm. the way they really want to. And that isn't to say that that all conservative Christians are are just waiting to be pro-gay. They just need it. I think that there are genuinely homophobic and fearful people in the world, but I know a lot of Christians who desperately want to be affirming, but because of their theological framework, they can't. Usually this transformation is impossible until a shift in ideology happens. Yeah, because it's all about what you believe, and then you have to answer the question, well, what is the basis of your belief? Well, the basis of the belief is the Bible. Well, how do you interpret the Bible? And there's the origin of everything. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, that's precisely where I started yeah. in, my, in my transformational journey here because suddenly I don't diminish the Scriptures. I don't think less of them. I actually think more of them exactly. now. Exactly. And what I've understood, and yes, I am looking down at notes because I want to yeah. honor him properly here. But, you know, in Borg's book, Reading the Bible Again for the First Time, yeah. mm. you know, he talks about basically he views the Bible as a record of human response to God. Mm. These are two ancient, com- ancient communities who basically are telling us about their experience with God. You right. said this earlier, man. Yeah. We think of them as sacred because of their status, not because of their origin. Exactly. Yeah. That's a huge, that's huge. Yes. We th- we think that they have authority because of how they shape us. They shape our vision of God. They shape our identity. Yeah. They shape our faithfulness. They shape our communities. They shape our imagination. He sees the Bible as a, I love these terms, a conversation partner. Mm. You know, we have this ongoing dialogical relationship with these scriptures and he sees them as a means of grace i mean they are literally sacramental because they mediate the sacred to us the process of working through the scriptures the process of being in dialogue and understanding them and and understanding how our forefathers and mothers have related to god that is how we understand our faith he just says the Bible is basically a record of the relational nature and the sacramental nature of the Christian life. I mean, we basically read about a divine human relationship in these stories. Mm. And that's what it's meant to do for us. It's meant to communicate the fact that God is for us, not against us. Right. And the writers, the people who who wrote the originals, put all this together, they are reflecting a lot about themselves, right. a lot about what they believe, yep. 
You know, sometimes I think when we when we hear the vengeful, belligerent nature of God in some of the Old Testament stories, and you thinking, well, these are God's chosen people who have been called out from the peoples of the world. Is it not reasonable that they want to describe their neighbors as not being like them? Right. And therefore they describe them in ways and and they and they engage their God in activities mm. that shows the separateness of them from other people. I mean, there's so many things in the scriptures that are hard for us to see the vindicating righteous aspect of God. I mean, just take slavery alone as an issue as yeah. represented in the scriptures and how difficult it is and has been and still is. I'm sure even in this day there are people who still will use the scriptures to support their... Oh, the idea of slavery. Yes, yes, absolutely. So for me, all of a sudden, the scriptures didn't fall apart. That's the farthest thing that happened. But they almost took on new power because for me it was like going, I can't be literal anymore. Yeah, yeah about what's what's detailed in these books, in this book of many books. Now what does that say about what I think of God? What does that think what does that say about how I think of myself? What does that say about the fact that all I've ever known in my life is same sex attraction? Well then I start reading other people who basically start taking the clobber verses Right. Genesis, Leviticus, Romans, Timothy, Corinthians, all those passages. Against homosexuality. The ones, and finding out, yep. much to my surprise, <laughs> how much I didn't know, Right. how much historical context, cultural context, no one had ever talked to me about, how some of the words are just faulty in the way they are. Yeah translated and i have read both evangelicals who have done their work and become affirming i've read ex-catholics who are now secular humanists i've, I've read an, an array of people who want to talk yeah. about what the scriptures say and i think we can all come to con- to the fair and right conclusion that what god says is don't use sex to have power over people. Mm, yeah. Don't use sex to abuse people. Don't use sex to enslave people. Don't use sex to define yourself. To define yourself. Don't use sex to distract yourself from mm. things that you might actually need to work through. Yeah. If it just becomes a compulsion, if it becomes an addiction, if it you know, if it even becomes part of some kind of ritualism, you have moved outside the boundaries of what I intended this for, and it's not good for you. This is not what I wanted for you. And then it leaves a lot of moral grayness of of then, well, then how do we live as sexual beings made in the image of God? And what does this mean for LGBT people? What does this mean for straight people? what you know for people in general and that is where i think people are just too terrified because if we don't have the, these hard mm-hmm. boundaries these hard boundaries of you cannot have sex until you're married you can't have sex within a monogamous relationship unless you're married what you can't have sex if you are gay etc cetera, etc cetera. those once those hard boundaries start to dissolve and mm-hmm. instead we are given a sexual ethic of compassion, a sexual ethic of care, Mm -hmm. it's far more positive, but it's also far more terrifying because then that means that the onus is kind of on us to figure out how to do it. Well, and the other thing that has to be recognized here is there are so many things about the world today that the scriptures do not speak to. Exactly. There's so many things that it does speak to that doesn't apply today. You know, just just about the, the whole issue of same-sex attraction, there is nothing in the scriptures that even speaks to the issue of lesbianism. Exactly. Lesbians get off the hook. There's no... Nice. <laughs> there's no... There, there is nothing right. in there about that. And, and you know, I've read people who say, well, 
Some people just want to camp out on the fact that Jesus said nothing about homosexuality, so therefore he says it's right. Which I don't think works. I think that's just it's ridiculous. A, it's I a think limp that's argument. Yeah. I think that's I mean, ridiculous there's, there's too. so many things people will jump to, but there's one thing that I think is very clear. God made us sexual beings, and to enjoy that, and to celebrate that, and to live into it. And part of that is living in wholeness. Yes. And, you know, to, as one of my friends says, to live in probably the most obsessed and repressed sexual climate. That's, mm. that's America. So, so what, do you, what do you think about this idea? It might sound heretical to say this, but I feel like as I'm hearing you talk, I think about my own experience within the church, and it's like we are constantly trying to maneuver and control and manipulate the world around us through the Bible. We are constantly distorting the lens of the world through the Bible and trying to create a world that fits within the confines of the Bible instead of having the world inform the way. And I won't even say the world because Christians, I feel like hear you say the world and that's like everything evil to them. I don't mean that. What I mean is the truth of the present, the truth of actually what's happening around you right now. What if you were to look at the scriptures and say, okay, I'm going to read these through the lens of being present now, of what my reality is, the things that are actually happening around me, the way that I see relationships working, the way that I see the world being, the way that my community functions, and reading it that way as opposed to reading it, I don't know, reading the Bible and then feeling like, I can't like that my optimal world to live in is one that's as strict and stringent and weird and doesn't make any sense and it is as oppressive as some parts of the Bible. Reading the Bible onto reality instead of reading reality onto the Bible. Right. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. I mean, I was just like yes. sputtering like an and, old jalopy over and, here. And you know, <laughs> P- uh, Peter Enns has just this really great description of what happens when we don't let the Bible and life be what they are, which mm. is messy and complicated and confusing. Yeah. And, you know, when we try to force the Bible into these boxes that it will inevitably burst out of, you know, or try to make this house of cards of infallibility that will mm. inevitably collapse. And then we it requires a certain level of denial and how it interacts with life is complicated. And when we deny all of that, it leads us to a place of despair. Mm. It leads us to a place of cynicism and despair and brittleness. And yeah. Can I can I offer a couple of ends quotes? Absolutely. These are two of my favorite. <laughs> One, one, he says, in all its messy diversity, the Bible models trust in God that does not rest on whether we are able to be clear and certain about what we believe. Mm, exactly. And then he says this, it's one thing for the Bible to be wrong about the long ago past, but it is far worse for the Bible to be no use to us here and now when we actually needed to tell us what to do. Hmm. Which, you know, I just want to follow up that last one and say, how can we expect it to speak to the here and now when it was written thousands of years ago? I, I, I said this in a, in a class recently uh, at my church. We were talking about the scripture and about the fact that, you know, within my tradition, we have the scriptures, we have tradition, and we have reason. The three-legged stool of how one approaches the Christian faith. I was sitting there listening to to my priest talk about this, and I said, you know, for example, most of us know what the American Constitution is. Mm. I would just be curious how many of us would be comfortable if we decided today that we would go back to the original version of it. Yep. Take away all the amendments that have been made since the first printing. And the room was two-thirds women. And someone said, well, I know two-thirds of us are going to feel really bad. Yeah, that's you know, a and, great observation. And just the fact that there, there are all sorts of writings and documents and narratives that we weave into our lives, and we're constantly needing to, as you just said, say it again, 
I don't know reality what I to the Bible. Oh, re- oh, oh yeah. yeah, reading reality into the Bible instead <laughs> of the Bible. He asked you to give reality. your version, not me. Yeah. To I was like, oh, what did I say? <laughs> wake up, wake up, wake <laughs> <Right>. up. <laughs> he's, do- he's dozed off. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. And and the fact that as you know, as I think Marcus Borg would say, it's this is this is an ongoing dialogue. It's very organic. Right. We're constantly working through this. We're not downsizing. We're not stripping the sacred scriptures of their importance. I mean, my goodness, they're they're hugely important. But we're also not asking them to do what they're not equipped to do. Exactly. So all of a sudden, here I am, finally, in my middle-agedness, reading these texts that basically I read for years as basically an indictment mm. against me and going well maybe they're not saying what i thought they were saying yeah maybe maybe the people who told me they were saying an exact thing were wrong maybe maybe it's not as dark as i thought it was mm. yeah because once that changes once the view of the scriptures and therefore you know, the quality of my belief or the foundation of my belief shifted, everything shifted. Because mm. that's all there was for me to hold on to. Yeah. Because, see, that's what had been, that was the hurdle that had been placed between me and God. Mm. Mm. And now it looks different. And all of a sudden I'm going, maybe God wouldn't be just so upset if I found myself in a mutually committed, flourishing, loving, compassionate, building up relationship. Yes. With, yes, a man. And we were true to each other and love each other, stand with each other. And, you know, none of none of the stuff that the Bible is so clear is just damaging to same sex and opposite sex attracted people. Mm. I mean, it's it's certainly not lost on me that having grown up in the conservative evangelical church, an opposite sex attracted man having an affair is not as horrible <laughs> as a gay person. Exactly. Isn't that the truth? It is the There's, absolute I mean, truth. There is a, it is the absolute truth. There's a moral there's a moral caste system. Oh, yes. Where if a straight man has an affair or messes up in some way, that is in many circles better than a gay man being celibate. And you know why? Because it's natural. Exactly. Because you and I are unnatural. Right. Unnaturally cool. We try. But he's, he's, he's much cooler than I am. No, I think you're fabulous. You know, but, so... I, but, I, but, you know, just, just on that whole natural and natural thing, I think the other thing that people have to understand about the scriptures is that, you know, it was a long time ago that those were written. Yes. <laughs> and they've been through multiple translations. It's been a minute, yeah. Yeah. And... You know, there are words that people have translated as homosexual that we apparently believe Paul just sort of coined the word altogether and Pulled we don't out of even his know ass. what it means. Yeah. Arsenicoitai, one of Yeah. Yeah. But, but but the point is just <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you did say that Paul pulled the term homosexual out of his ass. Yes, and he I'm did. Sorry, I could not let that yeah. one slide. <laughs> as, yeah. Okay. I'm not sure that really helps our cause, Stephen, it, it but doesn't. anyway. I don't know if I help our cause, if I'm honest. <laughs> anyway, the, the point is, right. when you talk about natural at that time in history, yeah, in relations to sexuality right. or sex, it all had to do with procreation. Mm. So if you weren't making children in a sexual act... It was unnatural. I mean, I keep trying, but it okay. <laughs> just doesn't. We'll work. talk. But anyway. <laughs> okay, so, and, you know, another thing with the natural versus unnatural is natural is really a matter of perspective. Mm. Natural is one of the most subjective things on 
the planet. Because what is natural for me as a gay person, what what is completely normal and natural for me is is not normal and natural for Matt. And when we start to get into those conversations of what is natural, of what God intended nature to look like, nature is so complex and the mm. way we have evolved is so complex, it it's impossible to say what is natural and not natural. And this idea that that unnatural is bad, that unnatural is unhealthy, and natural is good, well that and and then that we we overlay that on the conversation about sexuality. We only believe that straight sex is healthy because we now have the miracle of modern medicine. Straight sex has the greatest death toll of anything in human history. If you consider the number of women who have been killed in childbirth, if you consider the number of infants killed in childbirth, the ancient world saw sex as deeply bound to death. And this is one reason why Paul said it is better for a man to be celibate than to be married, unless he burns with passion. We're so disconnected from what sex is actually meant for our species, for our entire history and and the miracle of medicine which actually makes sex suddenly fine and normal and healthy and safe that's a that's a mere split second in the totality of human history mm. for most of our history straight sex has been the most deadly thing on the planet <laughs> and so when we talk about what is normal and not normal sometimes that which is normal is the most deadly and, and so it gets really complicated when we start putting what is normal, what is natural and unnatural under the microscope. And I don't think the nature of the world even allows us to have that conversation, mm. really, because I think nature by nature is so complex. It doesn't give a fuck about what's natural and unnatural. Anyway, that's the <laughs> rant. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> no, that's something that I get really angry about. Yeah. Wait, it, so it sounds outlandish when you say things like that. I mean, the words sound so abrasive to say, like, heteronormative sexual relations are, like, one of the most deadly. Yeah. They, but, it, like, it, it kind of makes sense. Like, I, we actually, when, when you said that, I was reminded, like, we had a friend who just gave birth. Yeah. She had a complication during childbirth. And if there had not been doctors there, like, a team of doctors with a, with a vast their own specific specializations in that process, we would have lost her. Exactly. She and would not be here. My sis, you know, my, my sisters would be dead because they had, my sister had to have a, mm. a C-section. Anyone yeah. who's had to have a C-section, anyone who's, I mean, most of us would not be here yeah. if we still lived under the medical conditions of even a hundred years ago. Mm. And so when the church says gay sex is unnatural and therefore physically dangerous. Unnatural equals dangerous. Natural equals good and healthy. In, a, in some ways, nothing can be further from the truth. Sex is dangerous, period. Sex is dangerous and destructive, period. And it is only through the very unnatural intervention of medicine and, and modernity and science mm. that it isn't. And so, yeah, when we start to put these categories of natural, unnatural, safe and unsafe under the microscope, they start to break down really quickly yeah so just before we finish up here just one thing to clarify because i know that some of my ex-gay survivor listeners are being triggered to death right now through these two episodes <laughs> right. when when you when you say the term same-sex attracted you don't mean that as connected in any way to a non-affirming view of sexuality or a non or or to ex-gay theology and i know you don't when i use that term yes i mean that I find men attractive. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. You like that's, dudes. That's what I mean. Exactly. And that, I use and I, I use the term interchangeably with gay. It's just that the whole gay straight thing is just a heterosexual jab at us. That's like saying that's like the term, you know, that sucks. That's just old slang for a homophobic phrase. Really? Yes. I just have so much fun with these words. <laughs> I've got so many to give up already. <laughs> Matt, I, I loved how in, in one of our text conversations, he's called something gay. And I was like, 
<laughs> and, and I milked it for all it was worth. I'm like, I'm so angry. I'm going to kill both of your dogs. I'm I going know. to. And you were like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, no, I just love making straight people feel super uncomfortable. I know. We, we've we talked about that on our on our podcast before, on the Eleventy Life podcast, <laughs> where it's like, yeah, we just did an interview with a, a guy who was like, I just want to challenge the way you use the word gay. And I'm like, I get it. It's going to take me a minute because it's 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 so fun. <laughs> I mean, I know that a lot of my listeners will have a challenge, will have an issue with that. But I know you and I know that you lost your job for supporting people like me. So I'm, I'm okay oh, with it. no. Yeah, it's um, yeah. Yeah. So, no, I just bring that up because the, the, the term same sex attracted is so deeply tied to ex-gay and non-affirming celibate. And I know that that's not what you mean at all, mm -hmm. but just to clarify for my listeners, uh, in case they think that that's, that's not what you mean at all by that. Because when you use the word gay, it also conjures up certain images, mm. certain lifestyles, certain jargons, certain this, certain that. And I'm just about the most disappointing gay person you might ever know i think you're pretty fucking fabulous well though, that's <laughs> fine <laughs> but 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 if you use that term and then you saw a picture of me you'd go wow that's sad i mean mm. i mean just i mean just spend a day with me and you just not really gonna if you're just looking for a certain things to happen and then no i'm gonna be pretty much a disappointment which you it's mean like the sitcom version of American Gay? Yeah, which is kind of why this is why I'm doing this conversation is because people need to understand that why do you think that all gay people come in one color? Do you really think all heterosexual people come in one color? Do you think all Asian people come in one color and all Hispanics come in one yeah. color and all whites come in one color and all blacks come in one color? All women? All, I mean, come on. That's ridiculous, but we have this special way of using the word gay, and if we're not all like the characters on Will and Grace, yeah, I'm like the most non-gay gay person. <laughs> well, and you know, the advantage, <laughs> I think the advantage of this, though, is that we get to decide what these terms mean for us, mm. and so then we can actually shape what we want this what is we we can shape what we want a specific word to mean for us and so there's always that difficulty of navigating here's the culture at large and then here's here's my personal meaning and i find that i often live somewhere in the middle between those two yeah yeah and and the fact is that's an option it's an option for everyone i mean this 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 really has to do with something hopefully we'll talk about in the next in the next hour talking about people's perceptions of me and what I am and am not concerned about. Right. And, you, you know, the, the limitation, it's like people who have known me for 30, 40 years, and now I'm going to say to them, well, I've always been a gay person, so now you can add that to the list of what you think of me, but may I just make one request? Would you not put it at the top of the list? <laughs> yes. <laughs> because otherwise, may I do the same to you? Exactly. You, yeah, may I just may 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 I basically relate to you now all the I, yeah. ways may I think I, of you? May I just fixate on the fact that you put your penis in a vagina and that is the one <laughs> thing that is the only thing that matters to me. Oh my god, I'm 12. Um <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I heard the V word and I lost my shit. Um, it's true. <laughs> yeah, but I but I think I think what I hear you saying also is that to people that may not know or that come across this information now, like I feel like you're also saying I've got I've got decades worth of friendship with all of mm -hmm. you. How would this and I, and I was that then. I'm just expressing it now. How does that change? everything that we did share the relationships that we did have the conversations we did have the times that we helped each other out the very human experiences that we shared together if this one thing really can make the house of cards crumble but see it really gets back to the to the thread that's running through this entire conversation which is where is your point of origin what what is the line in the sand mm. and if the line in the sand is the Bible says the Bible tells me so, mm. and your in your your interpretation is very consciously literal. Then, then Matt, you can stop speaking to me for the rest of your life. Mm. Can we text? 
No. <laughs> Emoji much? And no pictures. <laughs> no dick pics. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's a great note to end on for this show. Maybe. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We will continue this conversation. This is an incredibly important story to tell because there are so many people Mm. in the process, in this complicated middle place, uh, you know, in the process of coming out or sorting out what they believe and so on. And um, we need to hold that complexity. And that's how we make the church and the world a better place. So if you enjoy this show, if you find yourself looking forward to it every week, please take a moment to write a kind review on iTunes. That would really, really help me out. You can also support the show by sharing it, by writing a blog about it, by giving it to your friends. All of those ways are great ways to show your support for this show. You can also go to sbradfordlong.com where you can read all of my dozens of articles on faith and doubt and sexuality. I've also been doing a lot of guest appearances on other podcasts talking about everything from tarot to Satan to Christianity to homosexuality. You can go to my website to find those as well. The artwork is by Justin Caleb Bryant. The music is by The Jelly Rocks. Also, Matt Langston. Yes. You have a new album out. <laughs> yes. I know. Yes, I, I do. Um, it's awesome. called Rad Science, and there's a link to it in the show notes. Um, and it's fabulous. Yeah, I hate talking about myself. <laughs> it's, he, he's really an incredible. I'll talk about you for a minute. Oh. You can't see him blush right now, so it's all good. Mm. Uh, he's an incredible musician. You need to go check out Rad Science. I will close out this episode with one of his most recent songs, and we will see you next week. Yeah.